Shepherding has become a very popular pursuit for many young people in Europe who flee the urban life or the simple life of the countryside. Did you, did you know that there actually exist shepherding schools? At least three are located in France. One has a two-year waiting list. Another one had 200 people apply for the 50 positions offered uh, for that year's worth of training. One school in Spain specializes in training 21st century shepherds. Cesar de Ciceras in rural Extremadura opened in 2015 with a purpose, they said, of training and uh, providing all the training and resources needed to create a shepherd with the most up-to-date methods in a sector where traditional and cutting-edge merge. This school uh, offers classes in sheep shearing. Say that fast about ten times together. Sheep shearing, technology, how to spot animal diseases, the business side of shepherding, among other topics. These ten students in this school, in the five-month course at Cesar de Ciceras, get plenty of hands-on experience with with, uh, animals. There's something appealing about the sheep and their shepherd. When David wrote what became Psalm 23, he wrote about the relationship that he had with his shepherd. And he confidently boasted, the Lord is my shepherd. This former shepherd boy pictured himself as the sheep and he claimed Yahweh as his shepherd. Then he outlined the special care that his shepherd gives to him as his sheep and the special care that He gives to us. This morning, I want us to move to another shepherd passage. We've been in a sermon series entitled, Finding Peace in a Stressful World. We're wrapping that series up. We've been examining the shepherd found in Psalm 23 as we learn how to manage our stress in a healthy manner. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 10 this morning as we think about the Good Shepherd. And let me remind you that the Jehovah of the Old Testament... The Yahweh of Psalm 23 is the Jesus of the New Testament. You say, well, how can that be? Well, look at, for example, John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. In John chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus addressing the Pharisees says, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So as we dig into this John 10 passage over the next couple of Sundays, what does this passage teach us this morning about finding peace in a stressful world as we learn more and more about our shepherd who wants us to know him so deeply? Well, first of all, the the good shepherd serves in a class by himself. He serves in a class by himself. New Testament commentator Lenski calls Jesus the supreme shepherd because of his elite status. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Notice first that word good. In the Greek, there are two words that could be used for good. There is agathos, which simply describes the moral quality of something. We, we know Jesus is good because He's perfect. He's, he's sinless. There is no evil quality in Jesus. By nature, it's His very nature. By nature, Jesus is good. But that's not what Jesus is claiming here when He says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus uses kalos, which means that in the goodness, there is a quality of attractiveness of character which makes a thing lovely. In Jesus, there is loveliness. 
in Jesus, there's attractiveness. Second, examine a bold assertion. Jesus makes a bold claim. In John chapter 10, verse 7 and and 9, He says, I am the door or the gate of the sheep. He repeats it for emphasis in verse 9. And then in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now in John's Gospel, we find seven I am sayings that Jesus makes that are not found in any other Gospel. Have you noticed that? As you read through the Gospel of John, you see Jesus saying in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, verse 9, He says, I am the door, or I am the gate. John chapter 10, verse 11, He says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, verse 25, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, verse 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 15, verse 5, He says, I am the true vine. The grammar is intentionally impactful. Because I am, Jesus is emphasizing through the grammar, I myself and I alone am. Jesus is saying, I myself and I alone am the bread of life. I myself and I alone am the light of the world. I myself and I alone am the door. I myself and I alone am the good shepherd. I myself and I alone are the resurrection and the life. I myself and I alone are the way, the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 5, I myself and I alone am the vine. Jesus is in a class all by Himself. He is elite. In verse 7, Jesus states emphatically, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Most assuredly, I say unto you. As He emphasizes the exclusivity of Himself, of being in a class all by Himself. I and I alone and the gate for the sheep. Now just in case we missed it the first time, Jesus says it again in verse 9. I and I alone and the door. In the language of the Greek New Testament, this is the most emphatic way that Jesus could assert Himself and make this claim. The most emphatic way. In fact, this phrase Jesus uses in the Gospel of John is the same phrase that Jehovah God used in the Old Testament to declare to His people, I am the great I am that brought you out of Egypt. No wonder the religious leaders that Jesus confronted, that confronted Jesus, that interacted with Jesus, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were repulsed and reviled when Jesus made this claim, when Jesus made these statements. Jesus was claiming to be God Himself. And in their minds, they thought, this is blasphemy. The world does not accept this exclusive language, do they? Our culture finds this exclusivity offending. The late R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, pastor, the host of the Renew in Your Mind radio broadcast, told about a day in his freshman English class. Can you remember your freshman English class? The class was taught by a person who had been a war correspondent. And she was openly antagonistic towards Christ and Christianity. And towards Christians. For some reason, on that day, she looked at R.C. Sproul sitting in freshman English and asked, Mr. Sproul, 
Are you one of those who believes that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Well, he was very uncomfortable. He was put on the spot. He thought, if I say yes, 50 pairs of eyes in this class are going to think I'm some kind of fanatic. But if I say no, I'm going to deny Jesus Christ my Lord. So the freshman slid down in his seat, and in the quietest voice possible, he almost inaudibly said, yes. The teacher exploded. She said, you bigot, you narrow-minded, arrogant egotist. How can anybody say that there is only one way to God? How do you know that you're right? And then she went on with the class. Well, Sproul said after class, he went up to her and tried to share with her to no avail. Maybe you have had some sort of experience like that where you've been confronted by someone who doesn't understand this claim that Jesus made, that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but but by me. Here's the truth. This is not a creed invented by the church. This is not curriculum written behind some desk by some scholar. These are the words of Jesus Himself. You are not proposing nor promoting narrow-mindedness when you stand with Jesus on this matter. You are repeating what Jesus said because that is what He said. I myself and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. That means that the gate to the sheepfold The door to the sheepfold is wide open to anyone who will come to Jesus. Because Jesus does not exclude anyone. It doesn't matter your station of life. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your color. It doesn't matter your upbringing. It doesn't matter your country of origin. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter how big a house you live in or or all kind of things that the world may list. Jesus says to you this morning, come to me and I will give you eternal life. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus doesn't exclude anybody. We exclude ourselves when we reject Jesus. Second, the good shepherd strikes or presents a striking contrast. Jesus, the good shepherd, presents a striking contrast. I want you to look across the page to chapter 9 for just a moment. This is going to take a minute, but we, before we tackle these contrasts, I want us to understand the background to the statement that Jesus made in chapter 10, verse 11. This beautiful picture of Jesus as the Good Shepherd is, is set up by a very disturbing situation that occurred and is recorded in John chapter 9. John 10 builds upon the sad scene found in John chapter 9. So just follow with me as we read verses 1 through 34. Now as Jesus passed by, He saw a man who was blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground. He made clay with the saliva. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. 
And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is, not, is this not he who sat and, and, and begged? Someone said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am him. I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received the sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes and washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him who opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? <clears throat> How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. What do you want to hear it? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered, and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us? You are lecturing us? And they cast him out. They cast him out. They excommunicated him from the synagogue. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. <clears throat> the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, called the man and quizzed him thoroughly about his healing, and then they called the parents and quizzed the parents, and they said, you got to ask him yourself. Now, you, I hope know if you notice this in verse 22, chapter 9, verse 22, don't miss this. His parents said these things because they feared 
the Jews. They feared the religious leaders of their day. They feared being put out of the synagogue. They feared being ostracized. In, in their hatred of Jesus, the Pharisees' hatred of Jesus, instead of, instead of rejoicing that this man could see for the first time in his life, instead of rejoicing that this man was healed because of the ministry of Jesus, they continued to harass the man. Verse 28 says, the leaders reviled him. This man testified, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner or not, but I know this. Once I was blind, and now I see. And what ultimately happened, verse 34, they kicked him out. They had the power, the authority to to kick him out right on the spot because he basically talked back to them. They, They felt like the man was lecturing them. They took offense. They cast him out. Now, don't miss this. Notice what happens next in verse 35 of chapter 9. And Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Jesus heard how the religious establishment treated this man born blind from birth, who was now healed, who had received his sight. And immediately Jesus went to him. He sought him out. He he found him. He, He went to him. To the man he had granted sight, He now, as you continue to read, He now gave eternal life as this this man believed. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels how sometimes people brought the needy to Jesus and other times Jesus went to where the needy were? Jesus was never too busy to be interrupted. He was never too busy to reach out and touch someone who needed His healing touch or His touch of love, or His touch of salvation. He was never too too busy to show grace and interest. He always went to where the people were. We need to be sure that we are going to where the people are, to people who need Jesus. Do, Do you see people? Do you see people as Jesus sees people? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus described, or Matthew described the people as, as, as harassed, like a sheep without a shepherd. Do you see people that way? People needing a shepherd? Well, that's, that sets the scene for this statement that we read in chapter 10, verse 11, where Jesus claimed, I, myself, and I alone am the good shepherd. This is the shepherd of the New Testament. With that backdrop, Jesus says, in contrast to these irresponsible, hard-hearted, legalistic, uncompassionate religious leaders of the day who were supposed to be shepherding God's people, God had entrusted His people to them, and they had become so rigid and legalistic that they were uh, totally without compassion. Jesus says, I myself and I alone am the good shepherd. There are at least three contrasts here very quickly. First... Jesus is the good shepherd as opposed to other shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd as opposed to other shepherds. In John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5 that that we read earlier on the uh, opening video, Jesus uses the image of the sheepfold, which was in His day more than likely an earthly enclosure, sort of like a a cave that had no roof. Around the sheepfold normally were uh, prickly hedges 
that made it difficult for predators or sheep stealers to climb over the top. The only approach, the only way to get, the only way to get to the sheep was through the door, through the gate. And listen to what he said to these religious leaders in chapter 10, verse 1. Again, this is emphasis here. Most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. The same is a thief and a robber. They did not recognize Jesus as the gate, as the door. They were like thieves or robbers who, who had no concern for anybody. No concern for the sheep, but only for themselves. And then look in verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He's the shepherd. In, in a sense, Jesus is speaking to under-shepherds who have been entrusted with the flock of God. Every shepherd caring for sheep relates to Him as the door, as the gate. They recognize that Jesus is the door and the gate. We, we, we get so absorbed with this picture of Jesus in verse 11 being the good shepherd that we may overlook the significance of this picture that he presents in verses 1 through 5. He is saying that every true spiritual leader relates to me as the gate. Now remember, the Pharisees did not even recognize his deity. They certainly didn't recognize him as the long-awaited Messiah. Much less did they care about his sheep. Genuine spiritual leaders see Jesus as the gate, and he brings his flock in and through the gate to Jesus. True spiritual leaders are always pointing their sheep to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Second, Jesus is the good shepherd as opposed to false teachers. Jesus is the good shepherd as opposed to false teachers. In a sense, Jesus is contrasting Himself with false prophets and false teachers and, and, and legalistic teachers when He talks about being the gate. False teachers mislead the sheep and take them down a dangerous path. He calls them thieves and, and robbers. Thieves and robbers care only about what they can steal and take away. They're, they don't care one thing about their victims. In contrast, verse 9, look at verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Anyone who comes to Jesus will be saved. Jesus will give them eternal life. And they will also find pasture, meaning spiritual nourishment. Jesus feeds His sheep. Jesus cares for His sheep. Jesus protects His sheep. Jesus brings His sheep to rich, green, lush pastures. The pastures of spiritual nourishment. You know what that involves. We know more than we apply, don't we? Being in the Word of God. Memorizing the Word of God. Participating with others. Learning the Word of God together. Memorizing the Word of God. Studying the Word of God. Learning more and more and more about Jesus. God's Word gives that nourishment to your soul. But look at verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. Jesus continues the contrast. The thief comes to steal, to kill, destroy. Jesus is just the opposite. He comes to give life. He comes to give life and not just life, not just existing. He's talking about abundant life. 
False teachers come to steal, Jesus comes to give. False teachers come to kill, Jesus comes to give life. False teachers come to destroy, Jesus comes to build up. Jesus comes to strengthen your life. He comes to give you strength. And the life that He gives is that abundant, overflowing life characteristic of following Jesus. Third, Jesus is the good shepherd as opposed to the hireling. Now the main point that Jesus is making here in contrast to these bad shepherds is Jesus is the good shepherd. There are true shepherds and there are false shepherds. There are faithful shepherds and there are unfaithful shepherds. Look at what he says again in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 10. But a hireling or a hired hand who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and look at these words, and does not care about the sheep. In contrast to the hireling, Jesus is the good shepherd. In Jesus' day, there are three levels of shepherds. The owner owned the flock. He was obviously heavily invested. He was invested in the sheep. He was invested in his shepherds. The shepherds worked for the owner. They were responsible to the owner. They were accountable to the owner. They were answerable to the owner. They oversaw the flock. They were responsible for the flock. William Barclay shared that if anything happened to a sheep, he had to produce some kind of proof that it was not his fault, the shepherd's fault. If the shepherd loses a sheep under his watch, he must bring some proof back to the owner that the sheep has died. For example, write this passage down and look it up later on. Amos chapter 3. Verse 12, speaks of a shepherd snatching two legs and a piece of an ear out of the mouth of a lion. He had to prove that he could not prevent this death of this sheep that was captured by this lion. Then there was the hireling, the hired hand, the assistant, paid a wage to assist the shepherd. The hireling worked for wages, and when it came down to it, He had no interest, no investment in the flock. He was simply in it for the paycheck. Therefore, if danger came, if it came down to a sheep or himself, he ran. He took off and protected himself and and, and left the sheep totally unprotected. That's the hireling. Why does he take off? Because he has no investment in the sheep. He doesn't own the sheep. He doesn't care about the sheep. But in contrast, Jesus owns the sheep. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. We forget that sometimes, don't we? Who is it that we belong to? To whom do we belong? Are we our own man, our own woman, so so we can do our own thing? No, we belong to Jesus. He sacrificed Himself for us. He bought us with the price of His shed blood and His death. Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, tells the true story of how a young Messiah shepherd in Kenya was tending the flock that belonged to him and other members of his village. One night, a young lion attacked the flock. 
And the young shepherd single-handedly attacked the lamb with spear and club. The young shepherd was mauled. He had to be driven over 30 miles to the hospital. He almost died, but he survived. The owner of this sheep cared enough for his sheep that he fought to protect them. Never forget how much our good shepherd cares for you. Not only can David say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He was bragging, boasting, this is my shepherd. You may be following another shepherd, but in my case, the Lord is my shepherd, and the Lord is Yahweh. Jesus says, I myself and I alone am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Never forget how much our Good Shepherd cares for you. He especially cares about your salvation. He especially cares about you going to heaven when you die. If you're saved, He cares about your spiritual growth. He wants you to look more and more like Him every day. But He cares about your salvation. That's why He came to lay down His life for the sheep, for you and for me. You see that in verse 15. Let me ask you this morning. Is Jesus your Good Shepherd? What shepherd have you been following in your life? This morning I invite you to come to the Good Shepherd if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He comes to you this morning and He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you want to go to heaven, then then come and receive me and receive my gift of eternal life. You can make that decision this morning. And I urge you, I plead with you not to leave this place this morning wondering about where you're going to spend eternity. Because we can help you answer that question today. And you can receive Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you've accepted Christ, but you need to follow through in baptism. Or maybe you've been thinking about moving membership in the life of this church. We can talk to you about that and and, and what the next steps are wherever you are in your journey. We're here to help. Don't leave this place without grabbing me at the back, without reaching out to me on this email on the screen if you're watching online. And let us help you with whatever decision you need to make for Jesus today. Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Too many times, Lord, we procrastinate, we put off what we need to do, what we know we need to do. So many times, Lord, we make excuses. So many times, Lord, we assume and presume that we have plenty of time. Lord, we don't know how much time we have, but we know we have right this moment that we can accept Jesus Christ right here, right now, today. Lord, we thank you for for being the good shepherd in our lives and your special touch upon each of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.